0: So, today we interview Pat Brooks, yes?
1: Yes, well, I mean, no. Once again, we're listening to an interview I recorded last week. And I say we're listening to it, but really we're going to pretend to listen to it. We've already listened to it earlier. In fact, I haven't actually really listened to it at all. I've experienced it firsthand. You see...
0: Regardless, this episode is an episode with Pat Brooks. Yes. Patrick Brooks. Yes. An American. Yes. Doing his PhD in philosophy at Rutgers University. Yes. And he has an MA in philosophy from Texas Tech University. Yes. Furthermore, he was an attendee and paper giver at the Second International Conference on the Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories. Yes. Presenter of On the Origins of Conspiracy Theories, which is also forthcoming in the Journal of Philosophical Studies. Yes. And a new patron of the podcast.
1: Yes, I mean, well, maybe. Possibly. I mean, there's probably more than just one Patrick Brooks out there in the world.
0: No, no, there's not. I mean, there's a Patrick with two T's, uh, Brooks with an umlaut, three people who mysteriously died last week called Patrick Brooks, uh, and a derby-winning horse called the marvellous galloping Mr. Patrick Brooks, but no other human known as Patrick Brooks. That's odd.
1: Yes. So... What do we do with this information?
0: Well, obviously we have to interview other patrons. A new series, Patrons of the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, The Hot Takes. Uh... is yes. We've already
1: interviewed at least two patrons. Actually, at least three. And not because they were patrons.
0: What? Hey, well, some of our patrons produce good work. All of our patrons produce good work. We have to interview them all. But if we do... Yes then
1: they'll become aware that we know of their role in the conspiracy.
0: True, that would be awkward. Especially since it would shine a light on how we don't actually know what they're conspiring to do.
1: Best not to say anything, really. Just forget all about the patrons and who they are.
0: Okay, so uh, who's Pat Brooks and what exactly is his deal? The
1: Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M.
0: Dentith. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy in Auckland, New Zealand. I am Josh Addison. They are Dr. M. Dentith. We are in different locations because it's an interview episode. And, and, and since we're only going to have to be recording a bit before and a bit after... It's easier to just stay where we are and do it via the borders of the internet.
1: That's the rationale as to why we're recording separately. Actually, Josh is on the run, having committed yet another major crime, and is broadcasting from an undisclosed location somewhere in the southern hemisphere.
0: A major crime, but I'm not going to tell you which one.
1: I mean, there's only three possible crimes it could be.
0: Well, it's not baratry.
1: Well, I mean, you haven't actually quite got the skills for that. I have to say. I mean, you you're pretty good, but you're not that good.
0: Is that where you'd sink a ship to steal the? I can't even remember. I just I know it's a crime. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I definitely didn't do it. Whatever it is, uh, what I did do. Ignore though, I... everything
1: you read in the papers tomorrow.
0: Mm, I mean, I just do, do that generally. Uh, uh... Yeah, actually, that's probably not bad advice these days. Uh, but anyway, what, what I was segwaying into was the fact that I have listened to the interview that you recorded with Pat Brooks, uh, having in, uh, overcome my initial surprise when you said an interview with Pat. I just assumed it would be Pat Stokes, who is work we have looked at before. But it's a whole, a whole different Pat. There's more than one of them. You never told me
1: that. Yeah, there are there are at least two Pats out in the world, but only one Patrick Brooks. That's correct.
0: So. Uh, we, we we kind of we kind of covered that in the introduction as to what what his specific deal is. Presenter of the paper on the origins of conspiracy theories, which, as you'll see in the interview, uh, com- comes with a slight qualification there, but that's fine. It, it's, it, you've, got, you've got to have a catchy title.
1: And now, a forthcoming article mm. soon, I'm sure, to be turned into a TV series and a book.
0: Mm. So, um, did you, you know? Could- that the-
1: Make Polly Pockets into a film on the basis of the success of the Barbie movie.
0: I think every toy that ever existed is going to get made into a film like now, Mattel thanks to the success of Barbie. Has
1: made has has got the wrong message from the success of the Barbie movie, which is people want well written films. Mattel thinks they just want toy films.
0: Have I have I, I must have given you the penguin speech before, surely.
1: I As in Penguin Publishing or Penguin I can't from, know from, from, from I, I, read this,
0: I read this on a blog somewhere and I can't remember whose blog it was. It was remember remember the documentary March of the Penguins? The Morgan yes. Freeman narrated one? Yeah. And that came out and, you know, it's, it was a, a nature documentary essentially and it started winning awards left, right and centre and everybody loved it. And I remember one media commentator or another saying, you know, hopefully what we would like to happen is for studios to see the success of much of The Penguins and say, wow, this, this, this shows that we don't have to stick just to the, 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 the standard formats and genres that have, that, 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 that have been Successful for us in the past, it is actually Possible to do something a bit new and innovate and Experiment with, with different formats And genres and, and and still experience Success, but they knew what was actually Going to happen was that all the studios Are going to say, okay, we need to make more Penguin movies. Which is sure why we enough, got Happy Feet. Yeah, we got Happy Feet, we got There was that surfing one, Surfing Penguins, I can't oh, remember. See, I thought that was Happy Feet. No, no, there were, two, there were At least two animated Penguin movies hot on the heels of that and there's a third one as well that I can't even think of. It's Yes, yeah, so basically, I th- I, I'm think I assuming they're going to work, they're somehow going to work a, a Barbie Transformers connected universe already and then just get all the... In fact, wasn't this... I'm sure there was supposed to be a Transformers-G.I. Joe crossover or something already. It's it's going to happen. We can't I mean, stop they it. There
1: already have been animated G.I. Joe Transformers crossovers. The Cobra Commander appears as a villain in at least one Transformers straight-to-VHS film.
0: Huh. Right. I feel we may have got slightly sidetracked, which is that we're supposed to be into uh, supposed to be introducing your interview with Pat, which I think, I, I, given that you discuss uh, the details of his paper in detail in the interview, there's probably not much point in us actually introducing it right now. So maybe we can just play a chime and go straight into it.
1: That sounds like a plan. So, Pat, you've just returned from an exciting trip to the European Union. What did you do on your holiday?
2: Uh, okay, so first I gave a talk at the second international conference uh, for the philosophy of conspiracy theory in Amsterdam, uh, which was good fun. I got to put some three-dimensional representations uh, to some sort of formerly two-dimensional representations of people that I'd known for a while. Um... So that was great. I uh, heard a lot of good talks. I think my talk went pretty well. Um, I did lose my phone, which was embarrassing, but it was fine.
1: And you destroyed, or at least we destroyed, a podcast recording device. Because as listeners to this podcast will be aware, uh, the recording device I took to Amsterdam died one day. And it died halfway
2: through <laughs> a conversation you we were having for this very podcast. It did. Yeah, you had just asked me a question and I had what I think was a very good answer. And then just, it the, just pop. Yeah, I think the combined strength of the question and the answer just ruined everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I'm going to have to ask you, Pat. You'll need to, the power of your speech last time was so powerful. It actually destroyed an <laughs> electronic surveillance device. So I will need you to tone it down this time because Gosh. the podcast cannot afford to buy yet another recording device
2: what a terrible superpower that would be right just like what do you do You're like i break people's electronics yeah <laughs> can you do it on command no only friends uh, yeah. it only happens to people i like it's very random it's very random yeah so so we had the conference and then i spent um i spent three weeks time sort of bumming around belgium I rented a car i went to bruges which was very nice and i went to a bunch of sort of sort of small towns in the south of flanders and Wallonia. to a bunch of trappist breweries and had a lot of great belgian beer and met some cool people and did some cool hikes and saw loads of castles i wonder whether so like, i was asking some european friends whether they care about castles as much as americans do because in america there are no castles so every time i see a castle i'm like holy cow a castle <laughs> and they were like yeah not so much we see them all the time <laughs> so i was i enjoyed seeing all the castles and stuff um then i went to dublin and saw a friend for a few days and i went to iceland for another conference workshop thing and then finally after a month away and sleeping in many many different airbnbs and uh hotel rooms I, i made it home so i'm glad to be back i never thought i would say that i missed new jersey but i missed new jersey did you miss new jersey or did you miss your bed in new jersey i think i missed my stuff yeah i think i got home and i was like my desk my chair (laughs) like but i wasn't like north fourth street
1: (laughs) yeah there is travel travel is nice coming home sometimes though is even better now the talk that you gave at the conference on the origin of conspiracy theories i believe is now a forthcoming paper in philosophical studies so congratulations
2: Yes, thanks very much. Um, it's my first publication. The review process was, was like was really fun. Right? I was sort of nervous about it. I, you know, as anyone who's like written stuff for publication or attempted to write stuff for publication will know, right? Like until you do it, you're like, I don't know, I don't know if I can do it. And then my advisor was like, just send it, just send it in. So I just sent it, and then I got some great reviews and some comments that I think made the paper a lot stronger. And I kind of found myself really enjoying the process of you know, writing the letter saying like, oh, here's the things that the reviewer said and here's the things that I did in response to those things or here's why I don't think I should have done anything at all. It was like a cool, it was a cool process. I enjoyed it a lot and I'm glad it worked. Um, and yeah, it's really, it's a huge load off to have a, a paper forthcoming.
1: Yeah, I remember when I when I first submitted when inferring to a conspiracy theory might be the best explanation. And the, the sense of... I've got a PhD, but can I actually publish as an academic philosopher? And that that terrible waiting period of several months of going, I mean, I haven't heard anything back. Is that good? Is that bad? Because the first time you do it, you really have no idea of timetables or how these things work. And then realizing that when you get the comments back going, well, you know, it's a it's a revision, but it's their positive comments of change this, do that. Go, I can make it. And it makes the next submission so much easier.
2: Yeah, and I think I was really lucky <clears throat> because both both reviewers for my paper were seemed to be like I think they both recommended like publish but with revisions. So I got a conditional acceptance, which was nice. Um and I seemed like both reviewers were sort of on my side. They were like, Look, I like this paper a lot, but here's some things you could do. It wasn't this it wasn't this like antagonistic, uh, kind of thing. And that was nice. I was, cause I mean, as, as, as listeners of the podcast, will probably know, um, you know, philosophers can be a little antagonistic sometimes and a little crotchety. Uh, I'm guilty of this myself. Um, so I was expecting like a little bit more kind of, you know, like, what's this guy talking about? This is crazy. And I didn't get that. And it was very nice. It was very nice to get like positive feedback and positive comments. Um, And people who are clearly like, look, I'm looking forward to this paper being out, but here's some things you need to do. So that was, that made it nice. Yeah,
1: there are a lot of reviewer bees in philosophy. I actually think the entire profession is made up of reviewer bees. Everyone's (laughs) the second reviewer. So it is actually, as you say, quite nice when you get reviews, which are, look, there are improvements you can make, but generally I think the paper's good. I just think it could be even better.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and like especially too, like, you know, so I'm going into my fifth year. So many of my closest friends that I've made here at, at Rutgers are sort of have moved on or whatever. Right. And so, so I've heard, I've been hearing their horror stories for years about like, ah, oh, the reviewer did not even read the paper and yada, yada. So it was, you, know, you have all these things knocking around in your brain. And then you have your own experience and you're like, ah, I don't know if this is representative, but I hope it is because I could, this I can deal with.
1: Yeah now we we're talking about the paper, we're not talking about the content of the paper, so Pat, tell me what is on the origin of conspiracy theories? What is the origin of conspiracy theory?
2: uh, right, so I probably should have called the paper on the origin of some conspiracy theories, but I feel like that's a less a less catchy title <laughs> so the idea behind the paper was was this, so you're like, look, we've all um." read a lot of papers uh, in The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theory, and there's been a lot of things written about sort of why people believe conspiracy theories, whether they should, uh, what the expression conspiracy theory means. Um, But there's been very few things written about why people might initially posit a conspiracy theory in the first place. Like, imagine a situation in which there is no conspiracy, and thereby no cons- or no conspiracy theory, and thereby no conspiracy theory theory, right? And something happens such that somebody goes, "Now wait just a darn minute, I think there's something fishy going on here," and they posit some sort of conspiracy theory. Now whether they believe it or not, that's a separate question. Um, whether they should believe it, also a separate question. But there's some qu- there's some interesting moment where somebody goes, "Here's my hypothesis about this." It's an explanation for an event or phenomenon that involves a conspiracy, and I think it's a live option. So the paper is sort of asking under what conditions something like that might happen, um, and I argue that one way in which this happens, and one way in which we've seen this happen, is when you know you get like officialdom uh, or you know sort of the the experts in you know scare quotes or whatever uh, something happens and they say ah. Theory T is the explanation for this event or phenomenon. Um, But, of course, sometimes Theory T has, uh, you know, some problems, right? Like it will sort of entail things that seem like they can't be the case, or it will fail to explain things that seem like they need explaining. Um, And in these sorts of situations, I think— Very often you will have some sort of uh, other expert or some sort of savvy person in a related field or just some generally curious person go, well, hey, wait a minute. You know, it seems like theory T fails to explain, you know, events E1 and E2, even though it explains some other thing. Um, Maybe some other theory T prime might do better, Um, or, or maybe we should, like, take these anomalies seriously. And... I think in general, when we have this kind of back and forth, what we expect to happen is for someone to go, ah, yes, I see that. Um, I hadn't thought of that. Or, ah, yes, well, I I see why you think those things are anomalous, but here's why they're not. But what we instead get is people sort of trying to silence people asking these kinds of questions, people sort of shouting down people asking these kinds of questions um, in ways that are like really kind of hubristic, if that's a word, and antagonistic, um, And I think that leads people to wonder, Hey, why is this guy acting like such a jerk right now? I was just, I just wanted to know about this anomaly. And rather than tell me why there's no anomaly or why my theory is no good. He's, he's yelling at me. Like what's, what's going on with this guy. And I think there's a bunch of ways you can resolve that. There's a bunch of ways you can answer that question. Um, and some of the ways in which you can answer that question is by positing a conspiracy theory. Uh, Maybe the guy's a shill who's been hired by some, you know, uh, you know, company to push this official line, and the reason he's not responding to your question in a thoughtful and careful way is because he's not capable. Um, or maybe, um, you know, the person isn't sort of engaged in this, like, sort of standard— um, process of giving and asking for reasons and sort of like settling on the truth kind of business that we take ourselves to be engaged in because he or she's engaged in some other kind of, uh, you know, pursuit, uh, what kind of pursuit? Well, who knows? Uh, it's one that seems not to have the kind of norms that we're used to. Um, so you can see that's a pretty, at least I think, um, or so I claim, uh, that it's a pretty short trip from there to sort of conspiracy land. Um, and so I think in these cases where, there's sort of a tension between, you know, uh, or, or there's some sort of gap, you know, between the official uh, or sort of standard view um, and these alternative views. And when people broach alternative views and they get sort of yelled at or made fun of or shouted down, um, I think, like, this is, this is how some conspiracy theories can get going. I don't think that's all of them, but I do think it's a significant chunk, especially, like, in today's day and age. So that's sort of the medium-ish length... <laughs> summary of the paper so it's probably useful to use some examples
1: here to try to illustrate this so what kind of motivating examples are kind of leading to the here are some norm violations we need to explain what's going on here
2: yeah so i think i think there's like a really great example just from like that's still sort of ongoing is the conversation around the the laboratory leak versus zoonotic origin hypotheses for the origin of covid19 so pretty quickly, as I'm sure you all recall, um, there emerged a consensus that sort of the proximal origins hypothesis is the right hypothesis. And of course, like some people and not just like not David Ikes and not Alex Jones is like serious people raise some questions about, well, what about like a laboratory leak? And I don't mean what about an intentional laboratory bioweapon story that I think is a different, uh, different bag of hammers. Um, but I think people initially were like, "Well, couldn't it have got out of the lab. There is a lab right there, after all." And I think, on its face, that's a live option. And clearly, it's become a more and more live option over the last eighteen months or whatever. But initially, you'll, you and your listeners both, I think, will remember that, like, the media and like higher-ranking people in the CDC and at the WHO were like that's a conspiracy. It's racist. These people are crazy. We know that it's, that it came from, you know, it went from rats to bats to pangolins or whatever the proximal origin story is. Um, but it wasn't like, Oh, look, we looked into it actually. And here's a bunch of reasons why that can't be the case. They just yelled at people and called them like racist and xenophobic. And I think, loads of people and you can see it like go back and listen to some podcasts of various people and you can see it happen in real time where people are going hey man why aren't you just answering these questions like what are they hiding i wonder if they're hiding something (laughs) um so i think that's an example of like i think had people responded in a more reasonable way and had the conversation been more level-headed we wouldn't have people saying that I think there was a cover up, and that Fauci was in on it, and he knew, and gain a function, and yada yada yada. Right? I don't think we'd have that. I think what allowed people to start going there initially is the fact when people were like, "Hey, Dr. Fauci, what about this?" and he was like, "That's racist. I'm the science. If you question me, you question science." And people were like, "That sounds like not science. I wonder what's going on here." <laughs> and so I think that's a that's a nice example of of this that's that's happened like in recent memory. Yeah, another
1: example which always comes to mind is NASA's response historically to moon landing hoax theories. So for a long period of time, NASA would simply refuse to engage in talking about theories that said the moon landings were faked. And their stated rationale as to why they didn't engage is that they didn't want to give any credence to these questions by appearing to treat them seriously. So rather than engage in discourse and explain patiently, look, we went to the moon, here's the reason why, their response was, well, we'll just, we'll just ignore them because otherwise we're kind of lighting a flame under these theories. Because people think if you take a theory seriously, there must be something to it. So therefore, we don't take it seriously to signal that we think it's a bad hypothesis to even indulge in.
2: Yeah. And like and like what's interesting is like it's I think doing that has allowed people to come up with like more and more clever and interesting questions. Because I don't think the initial questions were about things like, wait, you're worried about the Van Allen radiation belt in 2023, but it wasn't a big deal in 68. Like, what's what's going on with that? Or people being like, just let us see the telemetry data. Oh, you don't have it anymore. That's weird. And I think it's let people get more and more clever about the things that they're ask the questions they're asking. Whereas, like, maybe if they would have just published straight away a bunch of answers to the questions they would have imagined and engaged, we would have sort of headed this stuff off at the pass. Yeah,
1: uh, there is actually something quite interesting here to compare the reaction of nasa to moon landing conspiracy theories and the warren commission with respect to the assassination of jfk because no matter what we think about the death of jfk one benefit of the warren commission is that all the data was published in a series of volumes the volumes, however, are almost impossible to read because they lack anything re- even resembling an index. So you have what people think to be hidden by design. Yes, we've released all the data, but in such a way that it's we can say, look, it's all out there, but quite deliberately, it's almost impossible to interpret.
2: Yeah, I remember very similarly. I remember a friend of mine. Um, this was this must have been I was in eighth grade, press of nineteen ninety nine. It was fifty years after roswell and so they were going to release um the documents from roswell and my friend was like uh just so excited about this book he was so excited for these documents and he we, we like we skipped school and went to barnes and noble or borders or whatever for him to pick up his copy of this and you get it and it's just there must have been 60 words in that book <laughs> and everything else was just redacted and, like, at that point, like, why even publish it? <laughs> because all that it did was make my friend for sure that everything that was under those redacted things was, like, and then the aliens told us this. <laughs> and I think, yeah, so I think, like, I do think we, we want to, like, resolve these kinds of tensions. And I don't think that, like, the epistemic authorities do themselves any favors, by just telling us, by trying to tell us that there's no tension there or like acting as if we're insane for wondering whether, <clears throat> you know, that theory is the best theory. And like, it's just what's interesting to me is that we all know how to sort of act like this, right? We know how to treat people's uh, disagreements or their questions in, in ways that are productive and conducive to a good conversation that doesn't involve generating conspiracy theories because we do it all the time. We do it in the seminar room. We do it in our own classrooms. We like, if any of our students, right. Said something and then somebody else was like, what are you an idiot? We'd be like, Whoa, Whoa, we don't do that here. That's not how we act. But when someone is like, I'm not sure that this is a thing, we do that same thing. And then we wonder why they, (laughs) we wonder why they act weird in response to that. It's just, so I think, sort of the upshot of the paper is, like, if we want fewer conspiracy theories, maybe we should, like, just be... We should be a little bit less antagonistic with people. And, like, we know how to do it because we do it all the time. So, especially, like, public-facing people. Like, there's no excuse for Neil deGrasse Tyson to be out here just, like, making a fool of himself in tons of contexts and then wondering why people don't take science seriously. But, like, we need more Carl Sagan's and less Neil deGrasse Tyson's. <laughs>
1: I mean, I guess this speaks to an interesting question about norms with regard to expertise, because you're right. In the classroom, uh, and I'm going to say this is an idealization, because I'm sure there are some classrooms where if a student says, oh, that person's view is idiotic, there will be some some teachers or lecturers who go, yeah, you're, you're quite right, they are an idiot. Top marks for you, bottom marks for you. <laughs> but ideally, the norm should be if you're going to challenge someone's view in the classroom, you can't just call them an idiot. You have to explain why they're an idiot using words, and preferably in a polite enough way that you don't actually use the word idiot in your particular phrasing. But is that the kind of norms that experts have when it comes to public science communication. Because I was having a conversation with someone who's involved in science communication in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And she was going, well, look, everyone starts off by going, yes, I'm going to take every question seriously. I'm going to talk to this person. And then a few years into their job, you realize you don't have the time to answer all those questions. And sometimes you're going, look, just a little bit of your own research would show you that this view doesn't actually work. And so you end up becoming kind of impatient or intolerant to bad questions and you shut them down and only focus on the part of your job which you've got the time and the inclination to do so are we doing that philosophical thing of saying look these are the norms that you people are meant to ascribe to we haven't actually established you're meant to ascribe to them but we're going to assert this is what those norms should be and then going, oh, well, you're you're not obeying the norms that we told you. You admit you were mi- mi- meant to obey. You're being a bad expert.
2: Right. So I do think I do think it's it's worth being really careful here. Um, <clears throat> so I, I certainly think that they are the norms. Um, and this is not just like philosophers asserting that these are the norms. So so here's why I think they are the norms. Um, or at least, at the very least, these are what average like lay people think the norms are and that's I think probably good enough to get this going so I think that we tend to think and by we I mean both like academics and especially lay people that like what scientists and historians and other sort of academic-y types and even like government officials and all these sorts of things I think what they think they're up to is sort of in being engaged in like a good faith attempt to figure out how the world works. And now that might be naive, but I do think that people are, have this naive view. This is the view we learn in like grade school about what science is, right? It's just a bunch of, a bunch of folks just being like, hey man, once we drop this, what happens when we drop, what's going on? Let's figure it out together because we want to know what the truth is. And I think if you believe that what you're doing is engaging in a good faith pursuit of the truth, that 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 does generate certain kinds of norms. It means that you ought to be open to sort of counter evidence, that you have a responsibility to engage in a open and critical, open but critical way with your interlocutors. Um, And, like, why these kinds of norms? Because these are the kinds of norms that, if implemented, will help us get to the truth. And if what we're interested in is getting to the truth, then these just are the norms. Um, And so maybe those aren't, in fact, what people are doing, but it's what people, lay people, think that the people, that the experts are doing. And so when they fail to do that, they're like, well, I thought you were doing this truth business, but it seems like that's not what you're doing. So what's going on? Um, so that's the first part. Do you have anything? Do you have anything to say about that? Well, I, say, I mean, there's also
1: one other thing you can add to that, which is that unless you've got a weird kind of nobility thing going on, almost every expert was a layperson at some point. So presumably, they've got those norms before they became an expert. So, yeah, no, that's yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. really good point. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, they've, so they presumably, like, wait, right, when they learned, like, you know, when. DeGrasse Tyson or, you know, Lawrence Krauss, uh, or any of these people, um, Lawrence Krauss is the physicist, right? Lawrence yep. Wright yep. is the political guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So presumably like these people learn about science the same way the rest of us did and probably internalized these norms, right? They, they got into the business because they, they wanted to be a part of the good faith pursuit of the truth. Um, yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, and so... I think it's very important to to at least demonstrate that in the main, that's what we're doing. Um, and now, in response to your uh, your, uh, your friends who's a science communicator, I think they're quite right that it can get a little overwhelming, right? Like if you have if you're made to answer the same goofy question every time you give a talk, and you've given the answer before, and you can just point to a URL, and be like, I answer that question right here. Um, I think that can be a bit frustrating. Um, and I think that like, it can't be the case that like you always have to put on a happy face. Now, I think I think two things are the case here. I think if you've elected to be a public science communicator, that's what you signed up for. Uh, you don't get to opt out of that. I think that's just part of the gig. Um, you don't have to keep being a science communicator. Like You don't have to keep being in the limelight. Being in the limelight is an active choice. And part of being there is being subjected to goofy questions from lay people. Now, I think if you're coming to my office and I'm not a public person and you're knocking on my door and saying, I figured out consciousness. Can I talk to you about it? Like I don't have to engage. i probably get to ignore you. Actually, the clever thing is listen to the person, tell
1: them an idiot and then write up their findings as your own.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think, so that's one thing. I think the other thing is like, of course we're all going to have bad days, but, Notice that, like, so to imagine two cases. There's a case where it's where we are right now, and then there's the the world that I'm describing where people are like generally like abiding by what I think these norms are, or at least what people think the norms are. Um, the case we are now, somebody's like, "Screw you, you're dumb." I've answered that question. You're an idiot. They're gonna go, "Yeah, typical." Of that's of course that's what they'd say. Like these people aren't serious people. They don't want to know the answers. Imagine a world where like we don't do that all the time, but it happens sometimes. I think in that situation people are going to go, "Well, that was pretty shitty, but maybe they're just having a rough day, you know? Usually this person is like is perfectly willing to talk about this stuff, but today maybe, you know, maybe they just didn't have enough coffee or maybe I was being rude, right? Like I think it's much easier to assume if something goes off the rails when it never does that like it's a one-off And that's a better situation, right? I think then you can resolve the tension by saying, well, look, you know, everybody has an off day. Versus in the situation we're in now, where you just resolve the tension by going, ah, they're in on it. (laughs) So I think something like that is probably right. But I definitely like, yeah, these people, the science communicators who are like, but I don't want to have to communicate. We're like, well, you picked the wrong day to be the science communicator then. (laughs) I mean, there also might be an economic problem
1: here, which is there also might be not enough science communicators. And thus you end up having a situation of, well, you know, I literally don't have the time to deal with this particular issue. I've got 17 other things I need to be doing today. Another question about the flat earth. I really don't have time for this.
2: That's totally fine. And I do think, I think another thing that would be good, like, look, given that there aren't, there there probably aren't as many science communicators as there are dumb questions, (laughs) that's Almost certainly, right? I mean, the history of humanity is one dumb question after the other. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's true. Um, so what would be good, though, right, is if if there were enough people who were doing the sort of thing that I recommend in the paper, which is just sort of engaging, and, engaging in a kind, kind of non-antagonistic, uh, non-dogmatic kind of way, that people could then say, well, look, you know, I've answered that question before. I'm happy to talk about it again, you know, uh, in the, you know, at at the, the, you know, the, the craft service table or whatever. Um, but you know, if you want, you can just look up where like, I've talked about this online, um, or whatever, like then you'd have a community of, of, science communicators that could point to one another and go, that's an interesting question about climate change. I don't really, I can't really speak to that, but you know who can, this person who has engaged with these people and they're, video is on youtube and you know whatever else or you can read it in this you know article where they have like a dialogue written up um you know i think about like i think the, the inspiration for this paper this is years ago inspiration uh was there was this show called the larry wilmore show on comedy central it was like after colbert went to the tonight show or whatever the late show whatever he is doing now yeah, it,
1: was, it was when they were trying to do a a entire spin-off universe from the daily show
2: that's, that's right that's right um and it was a good it was a good show i like that show um and, but it was like the flat earth was getting more popular so like i think this must have been 25th 2014 2015 so eight nine years ago um and neil degrasse tyson goes on and he's he's got like five minutes on national tv to like make a point and what does he do he just makes fun of people who think the earth's flat. He does like a five minute stand up routine about how dumb these people are. Um, and of course, everybody was like, Woo! But I was like, That's not good because I have a friend who is earth shape agnostic, right? He's not sure what shape the earth is. I yeah, love it. I, you told me about this in Amsterdam,
1: and it still blows my mind, not just. A flat earther, actually agnostic a- a- as too. I mean, there are many shapes it could be. I'm not quite sure which one it is.
2: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's an interesting character. You can listen to him on a podcast uh, at the Beliefhole podcast if you would like. They don't talk about the flat earth. They did it in their first episode, and pretty quickly they were like, "We got to stop talking about this, man." <laughs> um, but you know, so I remember him saying, "Like, look, man, if we're so dumb, and I'm so wrong." Then why didn't you just take the no time it would have taken to show me how dumb and wrong I am, instead of just like making fun of me for five minutes? Like I think all that that segment served to do was to you know calcify people's anti-expert views. Um, it was a real missed opportunity, and I think I think it did more harm than good. And I've heard many many uh, uh, a conspiracy person sort of point to that and go. Why didn't he just say, you know, why did he just, why was he just preaching to the choir instead of trying to reach people? That doesn't seem like the kind of thing that a serious person would do. And so I eventually, like seven years later, wrote the paper, (laughs) but it was sort of, it was sort of thinking about that question. I mean, imagine if he, if he instead said, well, look, you know, um, we know that you can show the earth around with the sun and three sticks, so let's go outside and do it. (laughs) It was a, it was what, what, you know, president Obama used to call a teachable moment. In which no teaching was done, and I think that was uh, that's why that's why I think that the sort of you know the communicating part of science communication is like you can't just communicate to people who already agree with you. That's not interesting. There's always going to be people who are like, I'm not so sure about that. Those are the people you need to convince. And maybe it's tiring, and maybe it's uh, overwhelming. But I think if the community of experts was such that they understood that that was part of their missive. Then it would be they can spread they can share the load a little bit more. I guess is like what I what I would think uh, I would say to that. And
1: it is also an interesting. I mean, if we're focusing on communication, of course, the, the old the trite adage communication is a two two way street, and because there are going to be some situations where you are communicating adequately and according to this lay norm. And the person you're communicating with is refusing to listen to what you're saying. And I mean, I've had this experience a few times where I'll get people who email me and they go, "Oh, you're one of those academics who's always poo-pooing conspiracy theories." Here's a conspiracy theory I think would be reasonable to believe. And I write back, going, "Well, I think you'll find in my book I say blah 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 and blah." And I'm not a skeptic, and they'll just respond with, "You know, but you're one of those skeptics, okay?" So no, I just gave you representative sites and a citation and a quote saying exactly the opposite but you're you're reading what you want to read you're not actually listening to what i'm trying to say and maybe that's the worry that some communicators have which is yeah but it doesn't matter what i say they hear something different
2: yeah look i i mean that's a that's a that's a real i mean that's a real problem i think just in general right like it's Um, I was just watching a a YouTube review of a video game uh, in which like the guy on the YouTube video says one thing and then everyone in the comments thinks he said something else. Uh, So this happens all the time. And I get, I I totally agree that it's a worry, but I think what you have to hope is that like, maybe this is naive. Maybe this is too uh, rosy eyed, but I do think you have to hope that most people aren't like that. The kinds of people you're going to be engaging with are the kinds of people who, who really do want to know and they really do have genuine questions and they really are genuinely curious and that that will be the greater number than are these people who are just looking to pick a fight and not have a real conversation. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, it's, it, it, it's an empirical question as like whether, <laughs> whether one, it's one group or the other group. And then I think pursuant to the empirical answer, it's just a sort of a cost benefit question, right? Like is the cost of engaging with a, you know, what I think is probably a small number of really obstinate people who just want to fight, is that higher or lower than, than engaging with everybody and, like, getting to engage with a lot of people who do want to learn and know stuff. Given that I think most people really do want to learn and know stuff and that the obstinate people are the minority, that's why I think we should engage, because I think we're going to reach more people than we don't. But if the numbers are otherwise, right, if, mo- if it turns out most people are just obstinate assholes, then, then there's no point, right? There's... Mm-hmm probably engaging is going to be really frustrating
1: well i mean say your paper is on the origin of in invisible bracket some conspiracy theories here so we're not it's not a paper on how to deal with conspiracy theorists it's a paper saying well look given these norm violations it's understandable that in some situations people go well the norm's been violated so often there must be something behind that one rationale might be coming up with they're covering up the existence of a conspiracy.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Like, it, it, I mean, the, the paper has like the last bit is like an upshot of like what we can do, which is what we've just been talking about. Um, but yeah, the, the I think the meat of the paper is saying like, yeah, yeah, just, just what you said. Yeah. But I think sometimes when experts act in these kinds of ways, the best thing to do is go, or, or maybe not the best, but an, a, a permissible thing to do is to go, I think they're hiding a conspiracy here. I mean, a simpler way to deal with
1: this would be to put microchips in the back of everybody's head to make them just think and act the same way.
2: Wouldn't you agree? That is true. That, I mean, that not that what, uh, wasn't that the plot of the the Red Sun comic book? Did you, read, did you ever read this?
1: No, no.
2: Uh, it's where Superman's... Uh, Capsule lands in Soviet Russia rather than in the US. Yeah,
1: I know, I know it was yeah it was a period of time where they were doing kind of those world things. They got John Cleese to write one where Superman lands in the Midlands in the UK.
2: <laughs> I would I would read a British Superman comic. That'd be great. Um, but yeah, in this, like, yeah, like Superman, like through the help of Brainiac, like engineers a chip that can control subversives. Yeah, Bat- Soviet Batman is not a fan.
1: <laughs> no, no, it wasn't written by Frank Miller by any any chance? What it? it sounds like a?
2: I don't think so. Uh, it's been a long time since I've read it, but I just I just watched. They had a mo- a, a cartoon uh, animated movie version of it that was pretty good. I watched over. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly easier to uh, to put a chip in. Um, not, I think, easier to just outlaw it or to restrict it because then you're just going to have a bunch of, like, you know, conspiracy sleeper cells. <laughs> and that's not going to be great.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that gets us into that fascinating paper by Cass Sunstein and a- Adrian Vermeule, where they go, well, you know, just infiltrate the conspiracy theory for for and tell them they're wrong. You know, that's the best way to do it, infiltrate groups of conspiracy theorists, engage in a conspiracy against them, and then just make the problem disappear and definitely don't foment the idea there's a state-run conspiracy to suppress conspiracy theories.
2: Yeah, that's like... Look, I think Cass Einstein is very good, usually, on philosophy of law and stuff. I don't know any of Adrian's other work. Um, Well, he's
1: gone quite right-wing and Trumpist in recent years.
2: I had heard that. I had heard that he'd kind of gone off the deep end a bit uh, in that regard. He's
1: the capital L in libertarian these days.
2: Okay, so he's like to the right of like, it's like people like Jason Brennan and Mike Huber. Yeah, and yeah,
1: yeah,
2: that's pretty far. That's pretty far over there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I remember reading that paper and going, "Wait a minute, are you suggesting that we have a conspiracy <laughs> to get rid of conspiracy theories? <laughs> like this isn't going to work at all."
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, the it's is, one of those classic from the mouths of babes.
2: It's one of these things where you're like, all right, so conspiracy theorists, you know, as a general rule, I think are pretty skeptical and fairly clever. Like, they're going to catch you. They're going to find out this is what you're up to. Oh, ah, but Pat, they very
1: cleverly hid their their plan in a paper which is very easy to read online.
2: Yes, highly cited that paper.
1: Mm, yeah. yeah. Like, highly
2: cited for possibly the wrong reasons. Yes, that's right. But, yeah, so I think, like, I do think, I do think, look, I mean, I, I think you'll be sympathetic to this. And I think that, you know, people like you and I and Charles Pigden and Curtis Hagen and, like, others sort of that come to our reading group. Um, look, I think that these people are often unfairly maligned. You read this, you know, Kasim Kasam and uh, Sunstein stuff and like a lot of the generalist stuff. And it's like, you know, even Neil Levy, I think, is fairly bad in this regard. We're like, look, these people are just crazy idiots. Yeah. Uh, They're epistemically vicious and psychologically pathological. It's like, look, man, I have like my dad believes some of this stuff and like he's very smart. I have like really close friends who believe some of this stuff and they're very smart. Like they're not, you know, they're not epistemically vicious. And I think in many ways they're doing just as well, if not better than other people. And they're not. You know, schizophrenic or otherwise pathological. They're just normal folks who are like, I'm not so sure about this. And so, you know, this paper is, I think, in many ways, like an attempt to go, okay, so a lot of the work proceeds from like, given that these people are crazy, what else can we say? And I wanted to write a paper, I think, in in sort of this very similar spirit to you and and Charles and so on. Like, given that these people are not crazy, what could we say? (laughs) Or oh, supposing yeah. these people are just normal functioning people. Like, what can we say? Why Why might it be the case that someone would think that the government lies given that the government's lied a whole bunch of times? <laughs> and it turns out, like, once you start thinking of it that way, it's pretty clear. They're just – I think they are – a lot of these people are just straight-ahead Bayes Rational. But, yeah. So that was, like – that's, you know, that's kind of the motivation. Just like that you know enough – you have enough uncles and cousins and friends who are, like – What do you think they're up to? (laughs) Yeah. What are they building in there? (laughs) Yeah, right. And I do think, look, I mean, we both read the Hofstadter paper. I think a lot of people take the lesson from the Hofstadter that, like, we're all paranoid and delusional. But I think the real lesson to take is that we don't like secrets. As a species, it turns out, we don't like secrets. It's not just Americans. It's everybody for all time. You know, um, in the paper, I use this example of... You know, um, you know. Suppose your partner's acting very strangely, and they're getting more and more texts and phone calls, and you're like, "Hey, what's going on with these texts and phone calls?" And they're like, "No, what are you talking about? I'm not getting any texts and phone calls." Like, you're not going to think, "Oh, I bet they're going to do something nice for me." No, you think like, "I bet there something's going on, and it's not good." And that's just people. That's just how our brains brain. Yeah, I do think we've taken a lot of bad lessons from other other papers. Not we, uh, others who do this research. Um, yeah, let me let me put, yeah. my, let me put my soapbox away.
1: Yeah. No, no, I mean it is. There are some really interesting and very questionable assumptions operating in conspiracy theory theory. And as you say, if we actually take a kind of bottom-up approach and we go, well, how are people inferring to the existence of these theories in the first place? There are all sorts of evidential cues which we're all primed, and I mean, it's a good question here whether it's nature versus nurture, but no matter which way we come down on it, we're all primed by our positions in societies and cultures to be suspicious about particular things. And so it's not unusual that when you see or apparently see some weird behaviour, you might end up going, hmm, I mean, there might be a conspiracy involved there. I mean, sometimes there might be, and sometimes there won't be.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yes, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, like, the more you look, uh, as we were talking about sort of uh, er- earlier on, like, the more you look at the historical record, I just think you'd have to be just profoundly unaware of what things are going on. And, I, in fact, I actually think people just are. Right? So I don't know, like, if... I would imagine you've been following this proximal origin lab leak business a bit closer than your average person, given what we do for a living. But, you know, like, so I get all these, I I, I get the stuff from the times and I get the stuff from Matt Taibbi and I get the stuff from the, you know, these people. Um, And I was thinking like, you know, nobody else is doing this. Like for the vast majority of people, like, it's just like, Oh, that's over. Like we're just moving on. Whereas, like, there's still, like, an ongoing conversation and, like, ongoing senatorial hearings and ongoing investigative journalist reports about this business. But I think for the vast majority of people, we're just on to the next thing. And they will say this thing when you bring it up. They'll go, well, if that were true, I'd have heard about it. (laughs) It's like, that's not a general principle. Um, So I do think, yeah, I think that just a lot of times just people just don't know. But I think that includes people who who work in a- academic settings, right? They just think, well, look, if if there was this big, de- if there was this ongoing debate about this business, I'd have heard about it. But like, not re- probably, maybe not, not if you don't make it your, you know, make it your business to look into it. Um, so I do think, yeah, it's just a lot of people. A lot of this stuff just passes people by, and then they go, wait, what? <laughs> I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, I think it also speaks to kind of
1: interesting thing about. The speed in which some scandals are covered versus uncovered, in that sometimes the news cycle isn't very well designed to cope with the notion that some things take a very long time to investigate and settle. And we've seen this historically with Watergate. Many people were kind of poo pooing the watergate story because it took so long for it to actually gain traction and people well you know if if nixon didn't admit to it on the third day there's really no point to following this story to any particular length and we're seeing at the same extent to a cert- well we're seeing it to a certain extent with what's going on with all the trump stuff so you know trump faces charges in court over the classified documents stuff and then case, well, the trial's probably not going to be until August or September, and then that trial's probably going to be about 12 weeks in length, which means we probably won't be getting any kind of verdict until the beginning of next year. And people are going, "It's, it's just too long. It's just too long. I want answers now."
2: Yeah, and I think, I think especially like you know, when we learn about history, right like everything appears so flat right? It just appears, look, it happened in this window. You know, uh, they broke into the Watergate Hotel, someone saw the lights, deep throat, you know, blew the whistle, and then, at the end of the week, <laughs> it was all it was all done. And it feels and that Nixon way. was dead. Yeah, and it feels that way when you read it. Yeah, yeah. Um, or it, it especially feels that way when all you have is, like, sort of the cultural osmosis of that event in your brain. But as you say, like right, like, this took... The timescale is much different. I mean, I, you remember the the um, the the Utah massacre that Steve Clark talked about. Yeah, um, the Mountain Meadows massacre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this is the timescale of what, 150 years before, like we fi- people were finally like, <laughs> yeah. This is this this is the the official story was nonsense, and all the people who were like, no, I don't think so. We're right. Yeah, and actually, the,
1: the disturbing thing about the Mountain Meadows massacre is that some of the people who were insisting that actually I think this was a false flag will have been quite dead by the time that the Mormons went, oh, yeah, definitely was a false flag. Actually, in retrospect, definitely a false flag. So there are people who, to their grave, insisted the official theory was incorrect and were probably being branded as conspiracy theorists by members of their community who are only vindicated in death which is the only time I ever think maybe an afterlife should exist. <laughs> just that t- and because I also think that Henry Kissinger deserves to go to a very, very fiery pit upon death. And as an atheist, it kind of disturbs me that actually when he dies,
2: that's just it. Yeah, I remember like that was, <clears throat> excuse me, it's funny you mentioned Kissinger, um, like, I think watching the the documentary version of Christopher Hitchens, The Trials of Henry Kissinger, I think was like one of the first things I watched. It made me think like, OK, there's a lot going on that we don't really know about because um, I think I watched that in like 2009. So we had like. 9/11, the Iraq War, the 2008 financial crisis. So I was pretty jaded already, and then I saw this like documentary. Then I read the book version, and I was like, "Holy moly! Like, this is not great." Um, yeah, he's not he's not good. I can't believe he's still alive. He's what a hundred now? Yeah, there was a. So uh, now I've gotten the name of
1: the director who did Reanimator. Uh, the name will come back to me eventually. He didn't do the sequel to Reanimator or the third film. Is it Argento? He, no, God, it's uh, he did Ant Head, Reanimator from Beyond. Oh, it's terrible. I I can list his filmography. I can't actually. His last name's Gordon. Sure, Gordon. I no, just yeah, two, yeah, it up. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Stuart Gordon, and he joked about when when nine eleven happened, and then the invasion of Iraq happened. He wanted to make a new re- reanimate film because he was going. He was shocked after nine eleven and then the invasion of Iraq that Kissinger was still hanging around the White House. He thought Kissinger had died years prior. He said, "Wouldn't it be great if it turns out that the new White House chief of medical?" is one Herbert West. And suddenly all of these political advisors that you think have been dead for quite some time suddenly reappear on podiums giving speeches. So he wanted to make a, a political satire about the invasion of Iraq, using Herbert West to explain why these ideas had been resurrected with zombie, pol- zombie politicians.
2: Ha!
1: That would have been great. So, yeah, would have been an absolutely wonderful idea. Unfortunately, never got made. And sure, Gordon is now dead, so probably will never be made.
2: Until, you know, until Disney run out of things to remake. And then they're like, we can just remake these old horror movies and make them terrible. No, but
1: Disney (laughs) is now remaking films that they made 10 or 12 years ago. They can always
2: just remake a remake. I know. Like, when I heard they were doing a live action of Moana. I was like, that just came out. (laughs) yeah yeah doing
1: i i mean i never quite understood making live action versions of animated classics but i could kind of see where you want to keep the ip alive so something you made 20 or 30 years ago you do a live action one but something which has been made in the last decade i i don't quite understand
2: yeah it's a it's a it's a wild world that's for sure um yeah, well, yeah, the, the the Kissinger stuff was very, very troubling. Um, and that was, again, like stuff you just never learned about in high school. They weren't like, and then some guy just decided to do a bunch of <laughs> essentially clandestine stuff <laughs> all over the world. I mean, this has always been one of my one one of my
1: bugbears about when people respond to claims that we should take conspiracy theories seriously, where you don't really believe all these conspiracies occur. And I go, well... I kind of do because there's no punishment in at least in the West with respect to engaging in conspiracies. Tony Blair and George W Bush are free men despite the fact that they colluded in creating a plot to invade a country under false pretenses. Kissinger's list of war crimes is really quite astounding and yet he's friends to both Republicans and Democrats when it comes to running for president. Kind of disturbed me when Hillary Clinton was talking about taking advice from one Henry Kissinger in her presidential run. There's no punishment to being involved in large-scale political conspiracies, and thus there's no mechanism to kind of stop these people
2: from doing it again. Yeah, and it's like, you know, it's like George Carlin said all those years ago, you know, it's a big club and you ain't in it. Yeah. If oh if
1: only we were pat though, if only we were. <laughs> yeah, we could be, you know, get some of that Adrena crown, live forever. <laughs> what we need is some of that sweet, sweet Soros
2: money. Yeah, I mean it is like it is wild when you think about like I think the fact that the rule of law in the West um, I mean, especially like in the UK and in the, the US, applies so much differently to, you know, people who, as you say, like seem to be perpetrating sort of conspiratorial things. Like, you can't say the financial crisis crisis wasn't the result of a bunch of conspiracy. <laughs> like, people knew, right? The opioid crisis result of a conspiracy. Um, many wars we've been into for no reason result of a conspiracy and these people as you say are just like you know george bush is probably having an art opening for his weird paintings and people are people go and they're like man he was great you could have had a beer with him it's like no you should be in jail these people are terrible i mean it also doesn't help that
1: because of the succession of subsequent republican presidents or potential republican presidents people go well you know george w bush he may have committed some war crimes but he's not as bad as the current guy
2: yeah yeah but just and like but no no penalty like no punishment for for the politicians no punishment for any of those bankers you know jamie diamond and company are still gazillionaires yeah it's just and i think people see this and this is just more grist for their conspiratorial mill. Yeah, and why is it? Why wouldn't it yeah. be? Yeah, like it's interesting. Like if you look at like there's this, um, <clears throat> there's a series of measures, and you and I both know that like these sort of these empirical measures are kind of, you know, you should take them with a grain of salt, probably. Um, but there's this thing, the World Governance Indicators. Do you know? Do you know of this? Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things that they look at is uh, sort of control of corruption and rule of law in a country. And it's the idea, like, it's it's people who live there and other experts um, uh, evaluating these kinds of things. Um, and, like, so countries where they reckon that the rule of law is, like, real good and the control of corruption is real good, um, place like Denmark, right, where it's, like, 98 99% of people are like, yeah, it's great. Um, the extent to which people believe in conspiracy theories in those places, very low go to a place like the U S or like Romania or some African countries where like, I think Nigeria is a a good example here. Uh, Turkey, you know, places like this where these metrics rate a little bit lower, right? Like in the U S like we're like 70%, 70th percentile for like corruption and rule of law stuff. Uh, Turkey and Nigeria and uh, Romania, I think are all a bit lower, but not super lower. Um, well, surprise, surprise! The extent to which people believe conspiracy theories, there way higher. <laughs> like, well, of course it is. They do. They 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 have. They fundamentally distrust these institutions.
0: Yeah,
1: and it gets back to the norms here. So, in places like Denmark, the norm is we expect that our politicians—I say ours, if we're we're Danish here—the Danes expect their politicians to be open, transparent, and honest. And due to the structure of their government, they're mostly open, transparent, and honest. Oh, and, oh, no, there are a few problematic cases from time to time, but by and large, everyone's content with the kind of communication and the the direction of flow of information from the top to the bottom. The US, not so good. Romania, actually very, very bad, as someone who lived there for almost two two years. And so those norm violations inform why people end up going i mean they're meant to treat us better than this the fact they're not treating us the way that we should be indicates they're probably covering
2: something up and in romania they often are well yeah and i think you know one comment i got from like sort of my 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 dissertation committee was like so why is this different in russia right like does, does my sort of story about conspiracies sort of apply to places like that? I'm like, well, no, because the norms are different, right? The people in Russia, I think, expect that the Kremlin are lying about things. Um, this is sort of par for the course. But I think in countries that are like purported to be free and open societies, <laughs> there's this veneer, right? They're like, well, no, no, we don't do things like the Russians do. We're very different, you see. Here, um, you know, the rule of law applies equally to all citizens, and blah 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 blah. And then they see that not happening, and they're like, "What the hell? What is this?" Whereas people in Russia know better, um, and I think we know better too. But we have this idea in our minds that, like, like you say, they're meant to be doing better than this. <laughs> Why are they not doing better? Um. I do think that so I don't know how much time we have left, but I want to run, want to run this by you. So I've been I've been working on this paper um, about sort of distrust business, um, and I think that conspiracy theorists uh, get a lot right. I think they're right to be distrustful of certain institutions, and I think that makes them sort of right to maybe reckon there's a conspiracy theory going on. But I wonder whether here might be an area where conspiracy theorists, even by our lights, are criticizable um, more often than maybe not. Do you think that they maybe think that the institutions that they rightfully distrust for, like, sort of character reasons, uh, do you think they overestimate the competence of those institutions?
1: Oh, that is a very good question, because I think generally we overestimate the competence of institutions whether or not we think they're engaging in conspiracies and i think in part it's because we have we have notions of norms with respect to how we think an institution re- should respond to a particular crisis And those norms actually don't usually reflect how institutions are structured. Uh, So I've been having an ongoing dispute with Emirates due to a problem on my return flight from Dubai to Auckland. And what's interesting about this ongoing dispute is that because of how compartmentalized Emirates is, I can get parts of Emirates to admit to one particular problem. But when we get to the second problem, they transfer me to a different team who don't ever want to respond to the question at hand. And that seems to be the way Emirates customer service has been structured to ensure that When you get an awkward question, you pass it on to another department, and then they'll elect to respond to part of that question, but not all of it, and keep moving you along, which is what led to the antitrust case in the US with respect to Microsoft, where small developers were going, look, we keep on contacting Microsoft because they say we should have access to the APIs. Every time I try to contact Microsoft to get the API information I need for my software to work, they just bounce me around. On the microsoft organization and this seems like a conspiracy a conspiracy by microsoft to claim to be open to working with small developers but actually designing a system such that small developers cannot get any ingress and microsoft's response and this is the chompskin style response was uh, it's, it's, it's not intentional it's just that this is how large institutions work they're compartmentalized And when we can't answer a question, we give you it to another person, and they think they've answered the previous question. So it's not not a conspiracy. It's incompetence or a cock-up that's going on. And I think we do have this kind of mismatch between how we think institutions, especially large institutions, should work. I expected Emirates to simply go, yep, we're at fault. Here's a refund. Versus the way that institutions actually work, which is well no we're we're quite large, and no one person or one department deals specifically with the kind of issue that you're asking about. so it has to be dealt with multiple departments, and they all have different norms as to how they respond to to these things, so I think it's not it's not just conspiracy theorists here. I think it's the general population mm. and our relationship with these monolithic entities that we just can't conceptualize working the way that they actually do.
2: Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Because then, like, it's a thing we're all guilty of, which is probably fine. Well, I mean, it's not fine. I still have a huge issue with Emirates. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, you know, I do think, um, I think David Icke, I mean, you've watched some of these, like, 12-hour David Icke things, I'm sure. You've been to them? Yeah. Oh man, I've only watched the video. My Earth shape agnostic friend was like, "You gotta watch this, man. <laughs> this is like 15 years ago." Um, and yeah, I think he talks about compartmentalization a lot, as like government compartmentalization as a as a cover.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, which is, I mean, I mean, the whole premise of the sitcom Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister is that the civil service actually quite deliberately works in a compartmentalized way to control the information that ministers have access to.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, probably, you know, we ought not cite David Icke as an example of getting it right, but I do think, like, probably this is something that's true. I I do think, like, if you imagine, like, a very clever person organizing a thing and going, like, well, you know, look, if the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, we have coverage here. So... And you could imagine it happening that way. You could imagine it happening very organically too. So the question is like, when should we think it's organic and when should we think it's not?
1: Yeah. And I think that's the really interesting question because that was the – when Microsoft said, oh, it's just a – you know, it's not by design. It's just we're a large organization. I think some people quite rightly went, I mean, it might just be an accident or – this could be a very convenient excuse you've come up with to explain why you've been conspiring against small developers whilst expressing the idea of being open to working with them. So, oh, no, 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 we definitely weren't actually deliberately preventing you from accessing the API. It was just we're we're a badly structured organization. Yes, that's the explanation we'll go with. We're just very badly run. And And I think that speaks to the competence thing we expect these organizations to be run well and they might be but they're not run well according to the norms that the public expect
2: yeah i mean i think like i do think it's like it's the kind of beggar's belief right like you're telling me you're a gazillion dollar company and you're and you're run this poorly like geez how much how much money would you have if you were run well (laughs)
1: Well, and actually, I mean, a nice example of that, which is very newsworthy, of course the writer's strike and the actor's strike in the US. The. Film companies go, oh, but we're very poor. We're very, very poor, say, these organizations that bring in hundreds of billions of dollars a year and are paying their CEOs hundreds of million dollars a year. Oh, no, no, we're very poor. And why are they poor? Because they engage in really interesting accounting practices that ensure that films make a loss no matter how much money they make. And apparently that that kind of open secret of creative accountancy allows them to go yes we're very rich and also at the same time we have no money
2: yeah i heard a very i'm I'm trying to remember where i heard this but there was somebody they were trying to hire an accountant and the like they said like i made this much last year And the accountant goes no no no. how much do you need to have made last year
1: yeah it was like yeah there's always a way to then go oh we're just uh we we'll just write off these Grecian urns we just bought against uh, how much you made because they're a uh, weirdly depreciating asset. So just just buy, just buy these urns. It's fine. You you'll suddenly you'll get
2: a refund from the government if you buy these urns. It's hilarious. That would be hilarious if you were like, man, the sets on this were really good, and they were like, well, we did that because like it was all original Etruscan, you know, stuff. So yeah. now it's a write-off. Yeah. yeah, and and now it's never going to be seen ever again. Well, you know, I mean, and I, I mean, look, I, when I worked for uh, the oil and gas company you know, between dropping out of undergrad and then later finishing, you know, in the t- in the late two thousands, um, and into the twenty tens, like we were independent contractors, and so yeah, the game was to be like, what all can I write off? You know, so you, you just get paid a w, uh, a, a ten ninety nine, and then. It's you're like on the hook for all the taxes. So you're just like, okay, like home office, all my mileage, I wore this tie to a meeting once, you know, like every everything you can write off. Your job is to get like your accountant's job is to get your sort of net income or whatever gross income as low as possible. And if that's true for, you know, a couple of, you know, oil and gas people making a good but not insane living. Then I mean, how true must that be if you make a billion dollars a year? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a scary proposition. So yeah, no, I think I think that sounds like a really interesting project there. And yeah, if we can then generalize it to this is not just a problem for conspiracy theorists, it's a
2: problem for everyone. Yeah, because I I do think it's important for people like us to it <clears throat> well, I mean, I wonder what you think about this. I feel like we, we, do, we sort of do defend conspiracy uh, to a large extent because I feel like it needs defending. Um, but of course, like, I think we want to say that these people are criticizable on some metrics or that these theories oh, yeah. are criticizable yeah. on some metrics. But I think we, we've spent so much time, rightfully so, sort of setting the stage to be like, look, it's not that bad. These people aren't crazy. These views aren't nutty. Sometimes they're like you know, Kassam in that recent paper being like tisk tisk you should know better and so i wonder if like it would be beneficial for us to at least be able to say well look here's a reason you might criticize these people well, in, yeah i know, mean you edit the kind of,
1: yeah you edit to the kind of lexicon of you know charles has talked about the problem of defectability Brian talks about the notion of maturity Lee Basham, Yuhao Reicher talk about the notion of, of fantasticalness. I've talked about recurrent narratives. And so you find features that go, look, this license, this license is a limited suspicion, which then needs to be developed by going, well, look, maybe these conspiracy theorists are attributing too much competence to an organization and then going, because they're acting in an incompetent way, the best explanation is, well, they can't be incompetent. They're competent, therefore they're engaging in conspiracy. And you go, well, actually, how do we distinguish between the competence of an all organisation and the expectation of competence by the lay public? It's a really interesting question. And yeah, it might be the case that conspiracy theorists go in one direction and other people go in another direction because, of course, the converse here. Is people excusing conspiracies by large organisations by going, oh no, 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 it's just incompetence on 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 their part. So you get the reverse issue of there are going to be some people who refuse to see conspiracy and go, oh no, much better to assume it's a cock up. In case of why is it always much better to assume it's a cock up?
2: Yeah, no, that's a very good question, um, and I think one that like they haven't really given a good answer to. Um, And, like, another thing, too, like, even if, right, so, like, you get get this a lot, like, well, conspiracies are unreasonable because so many people would have to keep the secret, right? We hear this all the time. Um, But look, I mean, if Microsoft really were arranged in such a compartmentalized way on purpose, like, the compartmentalization makes it so that only a very small number of people have to keep the secret, (laughs) It's not as though everybody who works at Microsoft is in on it. <laughs> and so there's 10,000 people keeping a secret. No, there's a very compartmentalized. It's a top-down compartmentalization. <laughs> eight people have to keep it secret. Yeah, like, all you eight, need yeah. is
1: the the managers of the various divisions to go, well, look, the reason why we don't have free-flowing communication between all divisions is actually would enable small developers to get the information they want. But I don't, I don't need to tell the people on the phone system that i just need to tell the people on the phone system if you're asked this particular type of question send it through the system to this person over here
2: yeah yeah so I, i do think like the i do yeah it would be interesting to see like if the nature of compartmentalization even if it's organic sort of you know humiliates against uh this claim that conspiracies require like large scale secrecy on the on the part of like loads and loads of people. That could be a, that could be a kind of cool a cool angle to take.
1: Yeah. And it speaks to the kind of structure of organizations, which is something which Martinor and I talked about in our paper Secrecy and Conspiracy. Which is you no, know, sometimes sometimes conspiracies are entirely controlled by a thing at the top controlling everyone going down through the kind of pyramid and sometimes sometimes they're diverse so it's actually one set of people controlling multiple or organizations and depending on what structure you think the conspiracy has you have a different reaction to how easy or hard it is to maintain the conspiracy given the the different types of moving parts you might have in your organization.
2: Yeah, that's that's good. I should I need to read that paper. It's it's funny. Like I've read, I've read a lot of the papers in the literature, but it just seems like there's eight more like
1: <laughs> every month. Yeah. So when I did my PhD, the literature was delightfully small and very easy to consume in the case for a week. But yeah, now the literature is. I mean, in philosophy alone, it's now quite big. But if you start going into sociology, religious studies, political studies uh cultural studies, social psychology, the literature is is unbeliev unbelievably large.
2: Yeah, I mean because now there's like a Rutledge handbook and there's like a I think there's the yeah there's a, the Rutledge handbook. I think there's another handbook. There's like edited volumes. I mean I'm I'm pretty up on the philosophy side of things, which I guess is pretty good. And I feel like you keep us abreast of the social psychology and things in the reading group, which is helpful. although Um,
1: sometimes also quite infuriating.
2: I think most times. Yeah. Yeah, so my my roommate um, is doing a... He's a philosophy PhD student, but he's a very math-savvy person. He's taken a load of statistics grad classes, and I was was running one of these papers by him, and he was like, wait, what? They did what? (laughs) It's just like... I can't remember exactly what it was. He was very surprised by sort of the... The, the quantitative methods that we're getting used yeah
1: no there's um, there's some interesting work coming out of social psychology but Let's let's not end, let's not end this by hammering down on the fault of social psychologists, but rather celebrating the successes of philosophers. So, when do you know when your paper is going to be publicly available?
2: Um, so, I will um, I will release the preprint at some point soon. I need to. Um, I'm meeting with my advisor tomorrow, and so I will. Talk to him about like what next steps are because I don't really know what next steps are. Um, but a I celebratory bring, drink, I've done that, <laughs> another celebratory drink. I and did you mean to say I've done that as well? I, I did bring home a really nice bottle of Irish whiskey from the duty free in Dublin, so that's my new so it's in my desk right here. Um, yeah, so I think I need to make a website, I've been told, um, which will which will probably be made in large part from help from my rcf agnostic friend (laughs) um and um i need to like finish my phil papers profile i suppose but um when will this podcast come out probably next
1: week well and for people who are listening that's the end of july
2: okay in that case like um maybe i will uh I will at least have it on fill paper, so I can send you a link if you want to include a link to the paper in the. Yeah, that show. would be great. That would um, be great. Yeah, it'd be great for me too. Cite it's just cite it. Um, even if you're not an academic, just cite it a lot. Even if, yeah, it's done, if it doesn't. You're, mean, it's just, if you're
1: a bio- biologist and you're writing about T cells, just just sl- slip in a cite to Pat. If you're a roading in- engineer and you're writing a report
2: on the new roundabout, just. Put it in the citations no just yeah, yeah. Abs- absolutely. um as my friend Adam Gibbons said about uh, one of his papers, uh just today actually he was like, just cite it, man, like just put a slip of citation in a footnote. nobody reads those anyways,
1: yeah, yeah, and it and it does a lot of work to a person's h index,
2: <laughs> yeah, so I will uh, but yeah, I'll definitely get you um uh, a link to the paper for the show notes um as soon as I have one. I think uploading it to Phil papers will be like this should be take me one second so
1: yeah yeah it's pretty much a a dot these days
2: yeah yeah so very very exciting i hope people enjoy the conversation um i don't think i rambled too much hopefully no,
1: it was great it was great good good well um, thank thank you Pat. it has been an informative conversation and hopefully we'll talk again soon in fact we will talk again soon in about two weeks time
2: yep looking forward to it thanks Sam.
0: And there you have it. Let's pretend we just listened to that interview and talk about it now. I I, 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 I find myself a bit more cynical, I think, than Pat. Your, your whole discussion about what you should actually do and his talk of teachable moments and so on, like, I, I definitely, yeah, I have felt frustrated from things like The Daily Show and stuff like that when they'd have, they'd have a person give a, a, an obviously wrong theory and whoever was interviewing them would just sort of give a sideways glance to the camera and and that would be it. And it was entirely just about, it was purely just entertainment. It was just let's laugh at these people and their silly views. It was purely for the benefit of the audience who they knew did not share the views of these people. So, yeah, I can see, especially in cases when, like that Neil deGrasse Tyson example he gave, where it wouldn't take very long to say exactly this is why we know these views are nonsense and then you could go then you, then you could get on with laughing at them. Um, but on the other hand, sort of the talk of teachable moments I, I I do have to feel that in a lot of cases they're not really teachable moments that, that, that we've seen so many cases of people w- w- where where you try to, Debate them to, to try to sort of, you know, calmly and non-judgmentally introduce facts, and they're just plain rejected. I'm sure some people, you know, some it, it, it seems to be a case by case, but thing. I'm sure some people's are receptive, you know, are actually interested in finding out what things really are, but it seems like so many people. It's it's just, it's it's more a matter of identity or anything, and they have no actual interest in having their minds or opinions changed at all.
1: See, I worry that you may be generalizing about conspiracy theorists there, because I want to go, but not all conspiracy theorists. Well, yes, case by case. Yeah, Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say, if you are having a debate with Alex Jones or David Icke, you're probably not going to have much success in shifting their views, no matter what evidence you present. Because they have a particular job to do, which is to sell a message because they're merchandising themselves as a kind of character in the culture wars. But I think Pat's more interested in people like his friend, who aren't actually immersed in the culture wars themselves with a kind of political identity based around I'm presenting the fact that the woke is the most dangerous thing to the world ever, but people who are simply going, look, there's a a debate going on here and one side is better at explaining why they hold their position than the other side does and those are the people we need to be thinking about when we're engaging in these public discussions. And of course, as Pat pointed out, I mean, there's no obligation to be a public intellectual or communicator of ideas. So if you are going to do it, you need to be thinking not just about the person you're talking to, but the people who are listening to it. Because sure, in some situations, maybe 80% of the audience listening to you agree with you and agree the other 20% are just Looney Tunes. But you can't guarantee that and you do need to be thinking about, if I just spend a few more minutes describing a particular position, maybe that 20% becomes 15 and that's probably worth it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I do, I'm, I'm of two minds about the, the, the scenario that you mentioned of the, I, I think it's uh, you're talking about specifically in, uh, in the context of a, a science communicator, and and Pat makes the the fair point that if if you have chosen to be a science communicator, then yes, you are just going to have to debunk the same points over and over and over and in, in ad infinitum. But I do I I, I I do sort of wonder sometimes if there's an element of pointlessness to it. I mean, I've I've talked in the past about how many years ago when I had more free time on my hands than I knew what to do with. I would um, hang around, sort of, n- n- not actually intelligent design websites, but the websites of people debunking intelligent design. And yeah, it was just depressing. How how often the exact same argument, the exact same arguments, which had been debunked, you know, decades previously would just come up every time, and every time it's like, no, we've been through this, this is the answer, and then the next person comes up. And you do start to think, look, if these people are really curious, the answers are there and not hard to find. So the fact that they're choosing to argue with you does make me wonder sometimes whether it is about truth or whether it's about just the argument.
1: I mean, I think there's another issue here, which is that sometimes what we think is a knockdown argument to a point actually doesn't appear obviously to be a knockdown argument to the person you're delivering that point to. And I think that kind of speaks to the epistemic luck, which plays a huge role in just why we have the positions we do. If you're having a... I mean, I'm thinking here about how David Icke's entire epistemic framework is about going, well, look, if my intuitions match my experience of the world, then that tells me my beliefs are true. So essentially, intuitions are a kind of veristic thing that tells you what's true about the world. And of course, if we're going to argue with David Icke, we're not going to go, well, but David, my intuitions are different from yours. We're going to try to persuade him with evidence, and he's going to reject the entire epistemic framework we're using. So the arguments we give are not knocked down to him, because we're not arguing along the same lines. And I think that's, that's a serious concern here, that we kind of assume that there's a living, uh, living, 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 as in the bread rises, a mm. level playing field. of We all knows, know how arguments work and how evidence works, but I don't think that's the case. And I think that's that's the bigger issue, and that some of these people are not being obstinate and they're not just avoiding looking for answers. They literally do not think the answers they're finding in books or increasingly online match how they think the argument should actually
0: look. Mm. Yeah, so I think I think possibly, yeah, the, the, the problem sort of shifts back from being uh, again coming back to to, to uh, Pat's idea of of the teachable moment. I think the problem shifts back to figuring out what's a teachable moment and what isn't. And, you know, what, when it's worth, um, worth or or potentially worth, you know, when when there is a chance and how big a chance again is another question that, 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 arguing back is going to have some impact and when you're just wasting your time and working out the difference between those two situations. Sounds like a, a, a trickier job, unfortunately.
1: Unfortunately, indeed. Mm.
0: So, uh, Pat's, Pat's uh, paper is going to be coming out soonish. Do we know when it's? So we, he has to be
2: sent
1: us a link to the archived version up on Phil Papers, which is the open repository that philosophers use to host their papers online. So you can put preprints up there. So it will be available for listeners of the podcast to experience and read for themselves. Experience is a weird way. Experience the article on the origin of conspiracy theories, now available as a mosaic. Hmm. So yes, there'll be a link in the show notes which will allow people to download the paper if they want to read it. Uh, As is fairly common with academic articles, they get accepted for, for publication and then... The period of time between accepted for publication and actually appearing on the website as a forthcoming article can be anything from three weeks to three months. So at Mm. some point, it'll be available with a DOI, but it is available to read now.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, there we go. Um, I, I, I would recommend it, quite frankly. Um, so, yeah, a good, a good talk. Um, I'm assuming that, that when you actually edit the, the um, interview together, you're going to cut off the first 15, 20 minutes of the two of you talking about movies and stuff, because what sort of responsible podcaster would get sidetracked into discussions of popular culture? There are philosophical debates to be had.
1: The the main episodes, it's up to you to work out whether you're going to slip that discussion in at the very end of the podcast or make it disappear or just put it up as a patron bonus special. It's up to you, you have the power.
0: Mm. That's an interesting point because I'm not currently in a position to be editing podcasts, but I should be in a few days from now and given that as at the recording of this episode i don't think last week's episode is actually up yet is it or have you I have you believe published it and i haven't so. seen it we, we we had a bit of fiddling around last week so things happened late so i could, i think we can be excused for putting out this one slightly late the than, later than normal which is my excuse for um how long Indeed I, to I know
1: it? it's out because Drew reacted to the intro in the way Drew was meant to ah.
0: Well, jolly good. Right, well, I think we're done. I think we're done with uh, this main episode. Oh, is it because it's not publishing to Twitter anymore? Because you know, um, mm. that's probably why I didn't get the notification. Right. Yeah, anyway,
1: so, and also, it's not not even called Twitter. It's not it, even it, called anymore. Twitter anymore. It's yes. X. So it has not been. So I'm not on Twitter or X anymore. Mm. Are they call- how are they pronouncing? Because I want to say it to yeeting.
0: Uh I, I have no idea how they're pronouncing it, and I don't care at all. I'm I'm just assuming Twitter will either be dead soon, or they'll 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 drag it um, screaming out of out of Elon Musk's hands and put everything back the way it was, or at least go back to calling it Twitter anyway. I I, I myself am not going to be calling it anything but Twitter until. Again, it goes back to being called Twitter, or I just leave it when it collapses entirely. Uh, anyway, what was I saying before I got sidetracked? By we're, okay. we're talking um, about the bonus episode. We're talking about the bonus episode. Yes, so uh, in our bonus episode this week, we're going to we're going to sort of continue the conversation a little bit regarding the um, the interview by talking about an instance of a theory which is not particularly particularly conspiratorial in itself, but which gets conspiratorial when people talk about why people, other people don't take this theory seriously, uh, which leads again into that discussion of do you do more harm than good by simply writing off theories uh, that you believe to be nonsense and refusing to discuss them, uh, a la what you were talking about with, with, with NASA not wanting to um, dignify uh, certain conspiracy theories with a response, um, or is it, Better in the long run to actually engage. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say what the theory is. I think I think it can be a surprise for our patrons. If you want to be in on the surprise, you'll have to become a patron, thereby gaining access to all of our bonus episodes.
1: See, uh, all I'm going to say is, Josh, they stole my apes. They stole my apes.
0: Ah, all your apes. What all about my your slip? They juice? stole all my apes. Oh no. What about Jimmy Fallon's apes? What about Paris Hilton's? I mean, those,
1: those apes, I think, are worth about 50 cents each now.
0: Yes, most likely. I mean, I
1: see, i see. I'm about to say, Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey's first tweet, which was sold for tens of millions of mm. dollars and is now worth 40 bucks or less on the yes. NFT marketplace.
0: Ah, schadenfreude. Who doesn't love it? But now, enough, enough enough with the schadenfreude enough with the teasing of the bonus episode Let's you and I go and record the bonus episode uh, and let the people listening to this main episode go about their respective businesses
1: indeed
0: mm. goodbye
1: Lassitude. the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself associate professor M.R. Extentus. our show's cons- sorry producers are Tom and Philip Plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, remember, oh December, what a night.